So let's get started on a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day you've granted, and I pray that you would guide our discussion now as we study your word, that you would help us understand it. Thank you so much for this church and for being able to be here and to worship together and be um, strengthened together and encouraged together, Father, in Christ's name, amen. amen. Um, we're working our way through the rapture, and what we decided to do when we approached the eschatology part here is to get a general framework, which we did by looking at the millennium, and then we're going to work our way through the, the schedule of supposed events as best as we can determine. And since the next great event on the schedule was the rapture, as far as we can tell from the scripture, that's what we're going to work through. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, what that's all about. And then we're going to work our way through the tribulation and on, on our, on our, to the end. So today, we're going to finish up this whole rapture question, the rapture issue. And uh, last week, we did a brief survey of this. I'll, just I'll go over it really quickly for those of you who weren't here. And we do have handouts here somewhere um, on all this. Um, what is the rapture? The rapture is the time prior to a second coming in which the Lord returns to carry his bride back to heaven with him. After the rapture, his wrath is then poured out on an unbelieving world. This is the next great event. What is it God catches the church away to heaven? Christ is going to come back for his bride. He's going to take us to heaven with him. And we're going to be there in heaven with him while God pours out his wrath on the world through the tribulational period. And why is the... What is the meaning or what is the reason for the tribulation? We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. It is to bring Israel to repentance. That's really what the tribulation is all about. If you look at Israel today, do they believe in God or not? No. For the most part, they are almost atheistic over there. Um, they don't believe in God at all. They certainly don't believe in their Messiah. There might be some looking for him. But as a nation, they're pretty irreligious. And God is going to use the tribulation to bring his people back to him. And that's what the tribulation is all about. It's going to be a period of seven years, and we're going to sort through that um, a couple weeks from now. The word rapture is actually derived from a Latin word, raptura, which means to snatch away, to grab, to snatch away. And if you want to think about it, it's Christ snatching his bride back to heaven to be with him um, prior to the pouring out of his wrath. Now, some... Well, let's go to the next slide here and let's see how this works. Some have tried to say, well, the rapture is this, um, and this is the amillennial folk, the rapture is a fictitious event. You just made that up. Um, there's no biblical precedent for that. Well, there is biblical precedent for it. We have it here. But one of the things to understand, one of the reasons um, that's going to fit into this concept of the rapture and why there needs to be a rapture is the fact that the church, and, and we, remember we talked about this in the millennium, the church is a distinct entity from Israel. You understand? There's Israel and then there's the church. They're not the same. All right? Now, is there a difference right now between Jew and Gentile in the church? No. In the church, we're both one. We're one body in the church. But that does not mean we lose the distinctiveness. You understand the difference there? We don't lose our distinctiveness. It's like when we talk about the role of women in the church in, in Galatians 3.28 where it says there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, um, Jew or Gentile. It, it doesn't say he's erasing distinctives. It's just saying within the church, God does not look at your gender or your nationality or your economic position or what you do. That's not, what, that's not how God categorizes you. In the church, we are one body. But Romans 11, 
tells us that someday God is going to again turn to his people. And who is his people? Israel. He's going to turn to them and he's going to bring them back to repentance. Right now, Israel is not believing. But someday they are going to believe and they're going to believe after this time of tribulation when God brings great tribulation on them to bring them back to seeing their Messiah for who he really is. And we find that, and we're going to sort through that when we talk about the tribulation. But the reason for the rapture is because there's a distinction between, one of the reasons, is there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And right now, what people is God moving or working through? The church. Someday, God will work again through his people, Israel. So if he's going to work through Israel, and in the church, Israel and the Gentiles are one, what do you have to do with the church? Take it away. And that's one of the reasons for this rapture, among others. All right? We looked at these passages last week. What's the promise of the rapture? Well, Christ said, I'm going to go away and prepare a place. When, I, when I'm done, what am I going to do? I'm going to come back and receive you to my self. Now, here's, here's a question. What was Israel always promised in the Old Testament? Nation, which requires a land, right? Requires land. What's the Israel been, what is uh, the church been promised? Do we get land? No. What do we get? Heaven. We've never been promised, the church has never been promised real estate. We've been promised heaven. So you see a difference there. And so if Christ is saying, I'm going to, come, I'm going to go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself, that doesn't sound like him coming to rule and reign, does it? It sounds different than that. And we understand that he's going to take us home to be with him because in his father's house are many dwelling places. What's our eternal inheritance? The new Jerusalem, heaven. That's what our eternal inheritance We've never been promised real estate, a land. We've been promised heaven. Follow? All right. And that's John 14, 1 through 3. And then when you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, what is Paul doing there? Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers, who are, by the way, they're probably three or four months old in, in Christ by now. These are not theologians by any stretch. But when Paul was there, he was talking about the time when Christ would come back for his church. And in the meantime, since he left Thessalonica and made his way down to Corinth, where he wrote 1 Thessalonians, what had happened? Well, some people had died. And so if you're a brand new Christian and your Uncle Joe dies, and you, well, did he miss it? Did he miss Christ coming again? What's, what about him? And so Paul writes this letter back, 1 Thessalonians, to give them the answer. Hey, don't worry about Uncle Joe. He's going to come with Christ. When Christ comes back to receive us to himself, Joe will be with him. All your loved ones who have died in the Lord will be there. They're, they're, not, going to be miss, they're not going to miss the great event. They're going to be part of it. Because Christ is going to come back with them, and we're going to meet Christ where? On the ground? In the, in the air. And we'll be with him. There's no ground here. There's no real estate. There's no coming to the earth. We're going to meet the Lord in the air and be with him. All right? And when we compare this to what we have in John 14, we're starting to get a better picture of what's going on here. Now again, what do you got to do with the rapture passages? You got to make them all fit. 
You've got to make them all fit. You can't say um, the rapture is when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom. Well, it doesn't, these passages aren't fitting that concept. They're not fitting it. And then the purpose of the rapture. What is the purpose? Well, we need to be what? Transformed. We're not going to be able to go to heaven in our current physical state, are we? We got a decaying body. We got a body that's wearing out. We got a body that some of us have pieces that don't work right anymore. Yeah. And we'll all be mentally stable when we get to heaven too, which is a good thing for you. Um, but uh, I can't. I, you open yourself up for that one. You realize. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, we need a body that's fit for an eternal existence. So what's going to happen in 1 Corinthians 15? We shall all be changed. How are we going to be changed? Well, we're going to be changed to have a physical body like Christ. Well, what's his physical body like? Well, it's an eternal body fitted for existence in heaven. I don't know what all that entails necessarily. It's not going to decay. It's not going to wear out. You're not going to get tired. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to break a bone. No doctors in heaven, which is a good thing. I don't know all about all that, what that means, but it's going to be a perfect body, perfectly suited for an eternal existence, and it'll never wear out. It'll never decay. It'll never run down. It'll be forever the same, and it'll be perfect. And then, because we are looking for this great event, what do we need to do individually now as believers? Well, if Christ is going to come back... And he's going to take us home to be with him. What do you want to be? Ready. ready. If you know he's going to return, and you know he can return any time, you need to be ready when? No. Now. Not then, now. And there's an anticipation here. The, the scripture talks about it in anticipation. And as believers, we're anticipating the return of Christ. Hopefully. And part of what makes that anticipation good for us is if we know we're ready. Now, Theoretically, are any of us ever going to be fully ready? No. But I think a lot of us can be more ready than we are now. Right? A lot of us can be more ready than we are now. And so that's the passages really surrounding this rapture. Now, as we look further at this, who's the participants? Well, Christ. He's going to come back and receive us to himself. All right? We have the archangel. Who's that? Well, most likely Michael. That's the only one we know of, but we're not told for certain. But most likely it's Michael. And there's going to be a trumpet, which will sound. Which trumpet is that? Well, the last trumpet. Now, we'll talk about this more in the, in the mid-tribulational rapture theory. But the idea of a last trumpet in those days, if you were an Israelite, how did you understand when somebody said, well, when the last trumpet blows, we're going to do something? How did you know that? How would you interpret that? Yeah, there are different trumpets that sound to give different commands. I'll tell you how bad it, I just realized not a couple, three, three or four years ago. I, was, I always wonder what the world was the fife and drum corps all about. That's kind of dumb, right? I mean, you're military. You got some guy playing drums and blowing a pipe, flute, or whatever. Fife. Well, I found out what it was for. They would play different songs to give commands to the army. They didn't have PA systems. So when it was time, like when they were billeted in a town, it was time to go to sleep, they, the fife and drum corps would go through town, they would play a certain song, and that would tell all the soldiers, hey, it's time to go to bed. It's time to get up. 
it's, we're going to be moving out in an hour. Um, all those sounds gave them instructions. I don't know if you knew that, but that was interesting. I just found that out. It's like Reveille, you know, and go to go in the army and you got the bugler playing Reveille or something like that. Wake you up. It's time to wake up. You got 20 minutes and then chow time or whatever. I don't know how that works, but so those of you been in the army or that know that. But the different sounds. So all Christ is saying here is when the last sound, when the last trumpet sounds, there's going to be a general call. That's the time. Now he doesn't say when the trumpet is going to sound, but he just says at the last trumpet, the time when God's going to gather us home to be with him. The body of dead believers, what is that? God's going to resurrect all those who have died from the Pentecost till the time of the rapture. All the church, all the members of the church will be raised incorruptible, 1 Corinthians 15. God's going to give them a new body instantaneously. Well, what about the one in the grave? Don't worry about that. You know, you see those pictures where, you know, they got the graves being blown open with its bodies flying up, you know. You ever remember those? Yeah, Interesting. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, now, I never watched that, so I'm going to have to talk about this later, <laughs> watching through it. But, but, but remember, you know, I remember seeing those old artwork, you know, where you got the graves blown open, these bodies going up. and Well, I'm not sure that's the way it's going to work, because what happens if you're buried in the ocean? Or what happens if you get ate by a lion? You know, I mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> What if you get eaten by a lion? Um, God's going to give you a new body, right? Not too bad, is it? Not too tough? If he created one for Adam, it's not going to be that tough to create one for us, right? He created the universe in six days. What's a few million bodies? It's no big deal for God. Don't worry about that. Don't get all hung up on that. God will give you a new body fit for an eternal existence. And then what's going to happen? We are going to be caught up and we're going to be changed on the way up. How's that going to work? I don't know how that's going to work out. I remember seeing, again, the old artwork. You know, you got the clothes, the empty clothes on the ground, you know, and no bodies in it. I don't know how that all works. We'll find out when it kind of comes. But we're going to be changed. The bottom line is, what's going to happen? We're going to be changed, transformed, given a body fit for an eternal existence. That's going to be instantaneous, and we're going to be with the Lord forever after that. All right? Now, when you look at that, we got the rapture down. There are various views of the rapture. There are various views depending on timing. Now, let's understand what we mean by that, as we said last week. It's not the timing when the rapture will happen, but it's the timing of the rapture in relationship to other events. That's what we're talking about. Because does anybody know the time when Christ is coming back? No. no. So don't ever pick up a book where the guy says he's found the secret code in the Bible that gives you the date. That's hogwash. That's a waste of paper and ink and your money. Don't, don't go there. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Why is that? Why do you think God didn't tell you that? You're not ready for that kind of information, are you? We're not ready for that kind of information. God wants us ready at all times, so we're ready at that time. And he doesn't want to tell us that information. Because it would be a tendency for us in our fallen state to mess around until, you know, a week before, get our act together and begin to witness before he comes back. We're not, that, that, there are certain things God knows that if we had the answer to it, just follow us up. So he's not going to give us the answer. And that's one of the things he's reserved for himself. Now, one thing he did do, what did he give us? He gave us the general climate of what it's going to be like when he comes back, right? 
We generally know the kinds of events that are going on, wars, rumors of wars, stuff like that, but we don't know the exact time. We don't know the exact moment. He's not given us that. That's not, and nobody has figured that out yet. Nobody. So don't let anybody tell you, well, we can't figure out the day or the hour, but we can figure out the month and the year. That's one of the other things. Because Christ said, well, you can't, nobody knows the day or the hour. It said, ah, but I got the month and year down. And a guy wrote a book on that back in 1988, and so far he's been 22 years off. All right? So don't get hung up on that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did Christ say? There will be people rising claiming to be me, right? All right. So, I mean, we're, we're, to be, we're, to, we're to expect this kind of stuff, all right? But as believers, what's, what's amazing to me is as believers, there's, so, there's a contingent of us that are so curious about the timing that we flock to buy these kind of books. You know, where people have finally decoded the secret hidden numbers and messages in the Bible. Look, God does not encode his data in the Bible. God has not encoded truth that requires computers to figure it out. God's told you what it's about. Book of Revelation, what did God say? Blessed is he that reads and they that understand. Now, who's he writing to? Theologians? He's writing to first century Jews, many of which couldn't even read. And yet, what are they told? They're given a blessing... If they can understand it. So that implies what? You can understand it. That's amazing. You know, Revelation is not a book of rocket science. It isn't. It's pretty easy to figure out. Now, there's some parts about it we're just not sure about. Well, yeah, that's, that, that's the way it is to all of Scripture. But you can certainly get the big picture out of Revelation without a lot of trouble. Because it's, it's clear. God, God wrote his word so that you can understand it. You understand that? God did not give you a book that he's encoded truth in that needs advanced degrees in theology and, and mathematics to understand. God has written his word to people who, who are barely able to read for the most part. You can understand it. That's a soapbox I get on, but you can understand it. It's not rocket science. All right, so let's look at these rapture views. Well, number one, there's the no rapture view. What's that? Well, there isn't one at all. It's a fictitious thing. It doesn't occur. It can occur. Um, and basically, all of the views of the millennium buy into this except dispensational premillennialism. All right, remember there are four views. There's amillennialism, right? What's amillennialism? No millennium at all, okay? Christ comes back, eternal state, the end. Then there's the um, classical premillennial view. What's that? Christ does come back, all right? He, he does come back, and there's a time where there's a, there's a kingdom, and then there's the end. What about the, uh, this class, the there's classical dispensationalism, and then there's um, postmillennialism. That's the one. What's postmillennialism? We clean up the world. We take over the world for Jesus. We Christianize the planet. And when we're all done, we get this whole mess cleaned up. We invite Jesus to sort of come back and take it from there. All right? And then there's the dispensational premillennialism, which believes there is a rapture prior to the millennial period. 
But what uh, the, um, the no rapture people do, or the almost all amillennial people do, is they say there is no rapture at all. In fact, if there is one, it's the same as the second coming. Christ just comes back and establishes, you know, different views where he establishes the kingdom or whether he just establishes the eternal state. But he just comes back and that's pretty much all there is to it. The problem is when you start looking at the differences, the rapture is when the Lord comes for his people. The revelation, what's that? That's when he comes to rule. He comes what? With his people. Difference there, right? One he's coming for to take us in the clouds. The other he's coming with us to establish the kingdom. Revelation 19 talks about that. The rapture is when Christ comes in the air. No, no mention of coming to the earth. But the revelation, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, what does he do? He comes to the ground. He stands on the Mount of Olives. It's split in two. The kingdom is established. Two different events. The rapture is identified as the day of Christ. What's that? That's the day we're looking for as believers. We're looking for the day of Christ, not the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the time of judgment. We're not told. And here's the other thing. Just an aside. I'll throw this in for free. Assuming we go through the tribulation, what is the New Testament missing? Think sideways. If we were to go through the tribulation, if we were to have to deal with Antichrist, deal with all that stuff, what's missing in the New Testament? How to survive, How to survive it. Where's that at? As believers, are we taught... Are, are, you read the entire New Testament as believers. Are we warned about the time of coming tribulation that we're going to have to face? And no. no, what are we told? Christ comes back. That's a positive thing. He's coming back to take us home. There, there's no, there's no atmosphere or no, no hint in the New Testament that we're going to go through this time. It's just not there. Mm-hmm. Right. In this life. Yeah. And and I, I would I, right. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 that's a good Yeah. Maybe we are not supposed to. Ah. Well, that's a good and, point. And, and there's also, you know, the whole concept that tribulation, trouble, trial is a part of earthly life. Right. And we do have instruction as to how to deal with that in the face of the trust Right. And, and your point, you've got a good point there in the sense that there are general passages in the New Testament say we're going to face trials in life. But when you look at this time of tribulation, the greatest trial that's going to come, and you look at the Thess and you read Thessalonians, you read both of those books, you've got here's a church that, quite honestly, number one, the first Thessalonians, they thought they missed it. And then the second one, they thought that they were in the time of the day of the Lord. And Paul is right and said, No, you guys got this all wrong. Don't, didn't remember what I told you? You're children of the day, not children of the night. That's not for you. All right? 
So the specific time of tribulation, we're not given instructions. Are we given general instructions like, hey, you know, we're going to be try we're going to have trouble in this world? Well, sure. We've had that throughout church history. But when you look at when you look at the the second coming of Christ in relation to the church and those pastors talking about that, there's always an expectancy on our part of it being a positive thing. He's coming back for us. He's going to take us home to be with us. Um, I kind of missed something here. You said Revel the book of Revelation is like where he's coming to rule and establish the The Revelation is the time. Okay, Revelation is a term we refer to when he comes back to establish his kingdom. That's the Revelation. There's the rapture when he comes for the church. The revelation is when he comes back to physically establish the kingdom. All right, that's, that's the two events. All right. The rapture involves the church. It's, it's talking to the church, not to Israel as a nation. The revelation is referring to what? Well, Israel and the nations. That's why he's coming back to establish his kingdom, to, to rescue his people Israel. That's what that's for. So when you look at this no rapture view, you really got to got to work through how do you reconcile all of these passages. And I've heard the guys talking about this. I've heard the amillennial, the postmillennial, the classical premillennial, and even the panmillennialist. That's, you know what a panmillennialist is? I don't know what's going to happen. They'll just all pan out. All right, that's a joke. I've heard those guys too. And none of them, they, all, they, they have no answer for any of this. They, they just... All they do is, they, they can't agree on what it really is. All they do is say, well, we know that the rapture is not right. <laughs> That's the only thing they agree on. But everything else, it's just all up for grabs. They're all over the map. And then we're going to talk about the partial rapture. We finished this last week. The partial rapture. What's that? Stole these slides there. Dan had a prophet did this and I stole his slides. So He said it was okay if I did it. So, But the partial rapture, what's that? Well, there are some that believe that when Christ comes back, they believe Christ is coming back. But the only people that go with him are the people that are looking for his return, that are ready. Now, just without thinking of scripture now, let's think about that concept a minute. How does that strike you? Theoretically, are any of us ready? Theoretically, none of us are ready. Theoretically, none of us are looking expectantly. Are you? On the way in the church today, did you think, maybe, maybe he's coming back today. Maybe, maybe anybody think that? that and, and it splits the body of Christ into two pieces. That doesn't make any sense. So where do they get this? Where does this come from? Well, what they basically do is they take those passages in the New Testament that seem to refer to being ready when your Lord comes, be ready, be ready, be ready. And they say, well, that refers to Christ coming and only those people who are ready get taken to heaven. They also use, for example, the parable of the ten virgins. Remember that one? Five were ready, five were not. So the only, one, the only ones that were ready got to enter the, or taken. Well, we're going to look at Matthew 24 in, in a one-week shot. We're going to find that that's not at all referring to a rapture. That's referring to the kingdom. Who gets to be into the kingdom? The people who are ready. Who's left out of the kingdom? The people who are not ready. That's not a rapture passage at all. There's no rapture in Matthew 24 and 25. That's not what the rapture, that's not where you go to get the rapture, but we'll talk about that later. But they use this, these, these passages to try and make their argument that when Christ comes back, the only people that go 
to heaven. The only people he takes are people who are ready. The rest of us who are not ready, who are not where we should be, we're left here to go through the tribulation. It's a not, to me, it's a total nonsensical viewpoint. All right, because all of those passages referring to us being ready can be easily explained and understood in ways other than the rapture. You've got to force the rapture into those. And it doesn't fit very well. And then when you look at, like, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, what does it say? We shall all be changed. It doesn't say, well, some of you are going to be changed, right? And in 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't say when he comes, some of you will be taken up and some of you will be left here. There's no indication there. In all those passages referring to Christ coming for his church, the inclusive word all is used. There's no splitting apart. There's no a one piece that goes to heaven and another piece that goes here. And think about, think about the imagery of the, you know, in the New Testament when the man came to take his bride home. He didn't take part of her home. It's all or none, right? You take all or none. You don't take part of it. That's not, doesn't make any sense. So really this is, and this is a very, very small minority of people that buy into this. There's not a lot of people that buy into this thing. But, but it is out there. You can run across it in, in um, some of your reading if you do that. And then the next view is called the mid-tribulational view. What's that? Well, the church goes partway through the tribulation. We're taken out around the midpoint. All right? It's called the mid-tribulational view. Now, what is the... And so you can see here, we're in the church age. We go partway through. And somewhere around the middle, we're taken out. And so... We have, to search, we have to go through part of the tribulational period. We're going to have to go through that time. Pardon? I don't know. But here's where they come up with it. They identify the last trump of 1 Thessalonians 4 with the seventh trumpet in Revelation. When's the seventh trumpet sound? Right about the mid-tribulational point. So they say, well, see, that's the last trumpet. The last trumpet is the seventh trumpet that sounds in Revelation. Now, now here, here's... Let me, let me take you back to a basic principle of biblical hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? <clears throat> Interpretation. All right? How to interpret the Bible. You're a Thessalonian believer. You got a book, a letter from Paul. He wrote a letter back. And in that letter, he writes that at the last trump, when the last trump sounds, Christ is going to come back. How would you understand that as a Thessalonian believer? By the way, can you understand what he's talking about? Why not? You're missing the point. That's, this is wonderful because you're missing the point. If you're a Thessalonian believer and all you got was the book of 1 Thessalonians and Paul said Christ is going to come back at the last trump, how would you interpret that? And how would you interpret the last trump? The last trump no. Go back into the culture. How would you interpret the concept or the phrase of the last trumpet? You're, no, you're, we, I, I explained it earlier. How would you, as, a, as an Israelite, as a Jew, how would you understand the term, the last trumpet? 
the call to move, the call to go out, whatever that call is. Alright? That's how you would understand it, right? You would not get that book and say, and you know, you write back, Paul say, hey Paul, what do you mean by the last trumpet? And Paul says, well, you know, we're going to find out about that when John writes Revelation in about 30 years. No! You would understand it. The point is, here's the point. Here's, here's something very important to understand. When, when a letter was written to you in, in the early church, when you got a letter from Paul or whatever, you could understand that letter. You didn't have to get that letter and wait till you get another puzzle piece to figure out what the letter means. Now, what do the other letters do? What does the other West of Scripture do? It fills in the concept, doesn't it? But does it give you new information? Anybody follow what I'm trying to say here? That's one of the things, you know, I, re I read some of these commentaries by these well-known doctoral theology kind of guys. And I, re I forget what the passage was. There was a passage in Matthew that they were talking about. They said, well, the, the key to understanding this passage in Matthew is you've got to go over and understand what John wrote in John to understand Matthew. And I'm saying, well, man, if I was the poor sucker that got Matthew, and I, I, was, I, I, I wouldn't know what it meant until I got John. But... I may not have ever seen John, so I would never know what this passage means because the key to understanding this passage is locked away somewhere in another book. That doesn't make any sense. Look, folks, when, God wrote, when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, the people could understand that. The idea that, well, the 1 Thessalonians' last trumpet is decoded by something that was written in the book of Revelation doesn't make any sense. Did I just beat that horse to death? Are you following what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah, when the clock strikes midnight, we're out of here. Now, we all understand that, right? Yes. I, you understand that, that, that phrase. Now, does that technically mean at midnight, necessarily? No, there, there's a time, there's a set time when the clock strikes midnight, we're out of here. We understand that. That's a, that's a figure of speech. And that's what this is. It's a figure of speech. And they would understand that. You don't need to wait till Revelation comes along to decode it. All right? Now, what's the, and really, that, that's 95% of their argument right there. 95% of the mid-tribulational argument hinges on identifying the last trump with the seventh trumpet. But it's refuted on the ground, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. What does that say? God has not appointed us to wrath. wrath. We're not, the church is not appointed to go through this time of wrath. That's the context of 1 Thessalonians. That's not why... We're, God, God has not appointed us to go through that time. And it makes, by the way, this, think about it. This makes the timing of the rapture possible. What did Christ say? No one knows when I'm going to come back. Well, if I know it's going to be at the seventh trumpet and six of them have sounded, what do I know? I can certainly pretty much pick the month, possibly. If not the week or the day. It blows this whole concept of imminency out of the water if all of a sudden I know, oh, it's the seventh trump, because we can just sit here and we start counting, you know, trumpet one, trumpet two, trumpet, okay, we're ready, trumpet seven's next. That doesn't make, it just doesn't make any sense. The mid-tribulational rapture really doesn't hold um, very much credibility. And then, here's a new one. Remember Marvin Rosenthal? Anybody remember Marvin Rosenthal that came here and preached and all that? Well, he bought into this, hook, line, and sinker. And this is called the pre-wrath view. And the concept of the pre-wrath view is that we're taken out somewhere in the middle part of the last half of the tribulation. That's their basic thesis. 
All right. So it's like a it's a it's a spin off the mid tribulational view. But the reason I bring this up is because this is very this is gaining traction in, in a little bit. And there's a whole ministry called Zion's Fire. I don't know if anybody knows of that ministry. They are th this is their view. In fact, here's they had they they came up with their own church that has this as part of their doctrinal statement. All right. Now don't get me going on that, but here's the problem. Whenever you create a, a ministry based around some nuance of end time events, you're off kilter right there. You understand that? Is that really what we're all about? No. They've got guys, they've got missionaries that will come to your church and, and teach you this. That's how zealous they are for this. And I've read their books. I got two of their books at home. I can't loan them out because I wrote all kinds of bad things in the margins. Um, I can't loan them out. But uh, some of their arguments are just asininic. They one of them, on, on the end, some of the arguments were, well, the reason Christ wants us to, to go through this great time of tribulation is to prove our love for him. He wants us to prove our love for him. Now think about that, but not too long. All right? If, if, it's, it's like me. Before Donna and I were married, I loved Donna. I, I, I wanted to marry her. I loved her. And I said, you know, I want Donna to prove her love for me. So I want her to go through some massive trial and tribulation and anguish and grief to show how much she really loves me. She has. Well, she does. <laughs> now, I opened myself up for that one. <laughs> but, but that would... Now they're even. What kind of person would I be if I, if I did that? That's... They're even. Yeah, we're even. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. But, he, but they made this whole big thing about how we need to prove our love for Christ by going through the tribulation and stay, you know, staying true. And it's like, I would never, if I love somebody, I would never want them to just go through a trial for the sake of proving their love for me. I, I would want to do everything I could to protect them. What kind of silliness is that? That's crazy. Oh, and then the other thing there is they're saying, they're, they're basically saying, you know, all you pastors who don't teach our position, you're, God's going to hold you responsible for the deaths of all your people that died during the tribulation. Yeah. Wow, that's a... That's a I mean, I want to reach through the pages and slap the guy who wrote this kind of stuff, you know. It's, look, it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Let's, let's look at what, what's going on here, all right? All this is is just a modified version of the mid-tribulational rapture. Now, by the way, I have a paper on this out on my website. You can read it if you want. It, it, that's a critique of this that goes through all of their points and, and one by one shows where they're coming from. But what they basically say is the rapture happens in the last half of the last half of the tribulation. And the way they get this, where they come up with this, is they say God has promised to save us from the wrath to come, from his wrath, but he's not promised to save us from the wrath of men. He's going to save us from the wrath of God, but not the wrath of men. So when you look at the, the, the revelation... And they look at the tribulation, they say, well, if you look at the seals, and you look at, at, at what's going on there, that's really the wrath of man against man. That's not the wrath of God against man. That's the wrath of man against man. So if you look at seal 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, 
all those seals have to do with man's wrath poured out on man. But then seal six is God's pouring out his wrath, and God promised to keep us from that, but not from the prior. So therefore, he must take us out between seal five and six. Follow? That's what they've basically done. God's promised to preserve us from his wrath, but not wrath in general. And then they, they go on from there. All right? They also really do a lot of stuff by the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And they say, well, they, what they do is they use the day of the Lord as this technical term to refer to the last half of the last half of the tribulation. Follow? Okay? Now, what is the day of the Lord? Okay? The day of the Lord in the Bible is a general term. It's not a specific term. And the general term means the time when God intervenes directly in judgment. All right? Now, when you look at, for example, Isaiah 13 and 14, it talks about a day of the Lord in history. What was that day of the Lord? The day of the Lord in history is when God personally dealt in judgment against Babylon. And it was talked about there, it was talked about a day of the Lord. In Zephaniah, I think, there's another day of the Lord that's talked about when God deals in judgment historically. But there's coming a future day of the Lord in which God is going to again personally get involved in judgment. When is that? The tribulation. Alright? And what they want to do is they say, well, God's promised to take us out immediately prior to the day of the Lord. So if the day of the Lord is the last half of the last half of the tribulation, that's when we're taken out. But my response back is, no, the day of the Lord is not the last half of the last half. The day of the Lord includes all of the tribulation. Follow? It's too early yet? It's a general time. It, it, the day of the Lord is a general time when God judges directly. And there's, coming a, there, there's, there's been some days of the Lord in history. There's a coming day of the Lord. When a final day of the Lord that the Old Testament talks about, and you see this in the book of Joel, you see in the book of Zephaniah, you know, where it talks about the day of the Lord, and, and even in the New Testament, the day of the Lord comes as a what? Thief in the night. And the day of the Lord encompasses not only the tribulation, but also what? The millennium. Because what's going to happen at the end of the day of the Lord? What's he going to do? He's going to dissolve the heavens and earth, right? They get a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. All right? So the point is, what they do is they make Day of the Lord a very technical term to refer to the last half of the last half. But it's not. This is a little, I know this is a little, you got to think on this a little bit here. And maybe the best thing to do is go out and get this. But these are very prolific authors. You can go out there and they got all these books and sources that they're promoting. And basically the idea is that we're taken out, we're partway through. And what they do is they also go to book of Revelation, the souls of them who are under the altar. That's the just raptured church. Okay, now wait a minute. If you go to the book of Revelation, who's the souls under the altar? The just raptured church? No, who is it? The souls of the martyrs. That's not the just raptured church. And then when John is asked, well, who are these? He said, well, these are those who are taken out of great tribulation. And they make a very technical argument on Tereo Act. Don't worry about that. You can read it in the paper. Which means to be taken out. And he's saying that's referring to the... John was told right there, these are the ones that are raptured. No. Because the word there, that, and, and Dan can explain this a lot better than I do, because he's got four years of Greek behind him. But the, the um, 
the Greek tense is not those who are taken out, but those who are being taken out. Do you, know, do you know the difference? It's not that they were taken out once for all, done, over with, that's the end, but these are the ones who are coming out of great tribulation. So what's happening as John is asking this? There's more and more showing up because there's more and more being what? Martyred. This is not referring to the rapture. It's referring to the martyrs who are dying in the tribulational period. But they, they, they do all of this. They do a lot of real, real fancy shenanigans with the text to try and force their interpretation down on it because they want to somehow make the case that the church goes through a big chunk of the tribulation. All right? And I've looked at all their arguments. I looked at all of them from scripture. And really, none of them make a whole lot of sense. They're forcing their interpretation on it on the text. So you don't need to go there. Um, by the way, anybody remember Charles Cooper? He was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He was a black guy. He was a professor. He came here. And, yeah, he came here and was teaching. Yeah, Charles Cooper. Yeah, he's on it. He went into this. In fact, he went so deep into this that he was trying to convert all of Moody Bible Institute to have them change their doctrinal statement to make it a pre-wrath statement. So he finally left that. And he's now one of the major shakers and movers and he just completed a book I didn't get it yet I should get it just to read it but he did a complete reinterpretation of Matthew 24 and 25 to fit the pre-wrath view and here's what these guys are doing and this is a warning for all of us whenever we look at end time events there's always a degree of fuzziness you understand that there's a degree of fuzziness why because God's not given us the full clear picture of every single detail and whenever we try to take the fuzziness out and we come up with a doctrinal position, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And, and we're going to create controversy where there should be no controversy. All right? And, and we have here, in, in, for example, Marv Rosenthal left Friends of Israel over this. Charles Cooper left Moody Bible Institute over this to found their own movement, so to speak, to promote this pre-wrath rapture kind of thing. And, they, and when you read their stuff at the surface, it sounds really scholarly, like they really know what they're talking about. When you start looking at the basic assumptions that pin it all together, there's no, there's no substance there. It, it, it's a house of cards. It, doesn't, it won't stand up. All right? And I could spend more time on that, but I won't. You can go read the, the paper there. Um, and then there's the post-tribulational viewpoint. This is a pretty popular one with many. And the idea here is that Christ comes for his church. Sure he does, but it's after the tribulation. We go through the tribulation. Okay? What's the problems with this? Well, if we go up, and then we're, what are we going to do? Come right back down. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Go up, come right back down. And if we go up, and we're all translated, we're all changed... Then they come right back down. Who are the mortal people that enter the millennium? Right? If we're all raptured, we all have our eternal body, then who, who, who populates the millennium? Because only believers get into the millennium. So, yeah, wow, you got a problem there trying to sort that one out. And if so, explain 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. How is it that we, come, we go up with Christ in the air and go away with him to be with him if we're going to come right back down? That doesn't make any sense. 
So it, post-tribulation, they, they got a real lot of trouble trying to promote this. But what they do, the way they do that, is they try to use all those passages to talk about, as, as Ruth Ann pointed out earlier, where we're told about, you know, in this life we we'll have tribulation, etc., and trying to say that's referring to the tribulation. I don't think you can make that case. I think all of us can relate very well that life right now has a lot of tribulation in it. All right? We don't need a special tribulation to get tribulation. And then there's the pre-tribulational view. This is the one I think makes the most sense. It, 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 it really answers the most of the questions and pulls most of the data together. And what is that? Well, Christ comes for us sometime prior to the establishment of the tribulation. Now, here's a, here's a bonus question. What event triggers the start of the tribulation? No. The Antichrist signing the treaty. All right. Now, we're taken out before that. No. So it could be that we're taken out, you know, a day, a week, a month. You know, it, there, there might be a little bit of fuzz right here. Okay? I don't think there's a lot of fuzz, but there could be a little bit of fuzziness in there. But let's understand what starts the tribulation, the clock, is Antichrist signing the treaty with Israel. That's what starts the clock. We're taken out prior to that. We're taken home to be with Christ prior to that. And the arguments for this position are many. I mean, there are arguments just all over the place. I won't go into them. If you want to read about this, read John Walvoord. He is probably the... Well, he was. He's, he's, he's gone with the Lord now. But he's probably the best expert on this whole position. W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. John F. Walvoord. The church, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Anything he writes on prophecy is probably worth reading. Because he was really a... Older book called End Times. It's not yeah. part of um, sort of like a systematic theology volume that, that Chuck Swindoll is part of. I don't know that I would necessarily recommend getting that because it's a little bit more expensive. But you can probably go on Amazon and for four or five bucks get his End Times book. Yeah. Yeah, there's he, about anything he writes is, is worth reading. He's, he, he has a, I think he has a whole book on the rapture. He has also a mini commentary on the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is about that big. It's a really nice book to read. What about uh, David Jeremiah? David Jeremiah would be very good. Jer David Jeremiah is probably one of the leading ones on this now. You know, But the, when you start looking at the pre-tribulational rapture, there's just argument after argument after argument that seems to support this, this viewpoint very well. Let's look at the book of Revelation. The church is mentioned 32 times in Revelation 1 through 3, and then not at all until Revelation 19. So what's happening in Revelation 4 through 18? Tribulation. There's no mention of the church there. Now, if the book of Revelation was written to the churches, telling about what's going on, why is it there are no instructions for the church as a whole in the whole period from 4 to 19? 4 through 18. We're not there. In fact, where is the church? When you look at Revelation, where is the church apparently at? Earth or heaven? Heaven. How do we get there? Well, I think, you know, we can make the case for the rapture. All right? We're not, we don't see the church on the earth. Now, are there going to be believers on the earth during the tribulation? Absolutely. But are they part of the church? 
No, they would be part of the, they would be, you know, the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers. All right. And by the way, who are the great evangelists in the tribulation? The church or Israel? Israel. 144,000 of them. All right. So the question is, what happens to the church? If, if we're a major player in this whole event, why aren't we ever even mentioned? Well, we're not there. All right. Um, God will call his... Here's, here's the thing. Think about, This is an interesting one. Whenever you declare war on a nation, what do you do to your ambassadors? Call them home. And then you declare war, right? God's going to pour out his wrath on earth. What are we now? We are his ambassadors. God's going to take us out prior to him pouring out his wrath. And by the way, just to go along with that, if you read... Um, I'm thinking if it's Jude or Second Peter. I can't remember which one it is. But talk about when God... Let, let's go back in history. When God poured out his wrath on the world in the times of Noah, what did he do first? He gathered Noah together and then he poured out his wrath, right? Uh, when, time, when time came for Sodom and Gomorrah to, to be destroyed, what did God do? Got Lot out first, right? There's a precedent here. When God pours out his judgment in, 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 in fiery finality, who does he rescue first? His own, his believers. He takes them out. He protects them sovereignly. A clear distinction is made between Israel and the church. You look throughout the New Testament, and, there, and in the Bible there's a clear distinction between those two groups of people, and the pre-tribulational rapture best answers and best explains that difference. There's a difference between the two. We'll talk about that more later. The church will not be overtaken by the day of the Lord. Why? What does it, what's it say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9? You're children of the day, not children of the night. You're not, you're not in the day of the Lord. Remember, I told you when I was with you, that's not for you. The whole tenor of 1 Thessalonians it's him writing to a group of people that thought that somehow they missed the rapture, they're in the day of the Lord, and he says, no, you're not. I told you, you're going to, that's not for you. You're not appointed to wrath. That's not for you. He's speaking words of comfort to Thessalonians. He didn't say, well, I remember telling you we're going to have a rough time during the tribulation, but I don't think it's right now. That's not what he's writing. He's writing to tell them, no, you're not in the day of the Lord because that's not for you. The tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. We're going to talk about this in detail. Daniel 9, what do you have? God says, I'm going to pour out 490 years of judgment on Israel. How many years have passed already? 483. So guess what there's left? Seven. And Daniel makes it very clear. Who's that? I don't know what John Hagee believes. Yeah, I don't. Um... The church is to look for Christ, not the Antichrist. Who are we to look for? Christ, who? Which one? Christ. Our expectancy is to look for him, not the Antichrist, right? Now, if the Antichrist pops up seven years before Christ, what should we have been told? Watch out for Antichrist. No, we're not to watch out for Antichrist. We're watching for Christ, our Savior, to appear. In order for the church to return with Christ at the end of the tribulation, what must it be true? 
It has to be with him before that. How do you get with Christ if you're going to come back with Christ? Well, you've either got a post-tribulational view where we go up and come right back down, which doesn't make any sense, or you've got a mid-tribulational view, or you've got a partial-tribulational view, or a pre-tribulational view. In order for us to be with him, we have to be there already if we're going to come back with him. All right? This viewpoint allows time for the Bema seat. That's next week. The judgment seat of Christ. What's that? We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, when do we receive our reward? If we go up with Christ, come right back down to rule with him, when's the Bema seat? There isn't any. All right? Or there's no time for it. This makes the most sense. And then, if Christ came at the end of the tribulation for all the saints, there would be no none in human bodies to populate the kingdom. If Christ came back and raptured or, or changed and, and made immortal all the believers, who enters the millennium? There's no one enter the millennium, right? We're all immortal. Whereas if we come back with Christ, we understand who enters the millennium. The believers at the end of the tribulation, those that are still alive, that have not died, will enter the, in the millennium. They're the ones that are going to populate the millennium. And how much of Israel is that going to be, it says? About how much? Zechariah 13, a third. About one-third of Israel will believe. When you look at this, this makes the most sense. Now, really, we could spend th weeks on this. Because there are many more arguments than just what I've tossed out here. And I would recommend you get Walvard's book or something if you want to go in deeper. But when you look at this, the, the, the viewpoint that makes the most sense, that explains the most amount of scriptures in a consistent, logical whole, is the pre-tribulational rapture. So, done just in time. What's the conclusion of all of this? Well, nowhere in Scripture is it possible to prove one rapture position to 100% accuracy. What do I mean by that? God did not tell us, okay, look, all the, all the, all the stuff aside, here's the events. Bang, 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 bang. He didn't do that. We have to pull the passages together. But when we do that, when we, when we, again, when we take all the passages having to do with the second coming, we put them on the table, we come up with a, the view that best explains all of those passages I think you can make a strong case for the pre-tribulational rapture view. That makes the most sense of all of them. All right? And that's what it is. The preponderance of evidence would tend to make us be pre-tribulational. Now, just as, a, just as an end, what's, some might ask, well, what is Church of the Open Door's official position on this? What's our official doctrinal statement? All right? We don't have one on this. All right, it's not in our doctrinal statement, all right? But generally, we are premillennial, pre-tribulational. That's our church. What have we done in our doctrinal statement? We put in our doctrinal statement the absolute essentials. And since this is not an essential, it's not part of our official doctrinal statement. Follow? It's not part of, What's in the doctrinal statement is the essential truth. So, this is not essential. So... Don't go create a new ministry on some spin on this. Don't spend your time going to churches arguing about when the Lord is going to come back. What should you be doing? Getting ready. Getting ready. I mean, can you imagine Noah arguing with people about how he should decorate the ark? 
Don't worry about decorations. Build the doggone thing. <laughs> Don't worry about the decorations. And we're, we're so busy fighting about the decorations on our the theological systems, we're missing the big picture, which is what? You've got to be ready. So whenever he comes back, we're ready. And I like what Dan Sam said. Dan Sam said, when he was going through this in, their, um, in, in his uh, college days, the professor said, look, I'm a pre-tribulationist. That, that's my stance. But you know what? If the tribulation begins, guess what I am now? I'm going to be a mid-tribulationist. And if the midpoint passes, what am I going to be? Well, I'm going to be a pre-wrath guy. And if that passes, I guess I'll have to be a post-tribulationist. All right? The point is, let's not argue about this. Okay? We can talk about it. We can discuss it. But this is not really the place to create new ministries. <laughs> Trying to promote some new spin on this stuff. All right? And I would really recommend, if you want to go dig into this further, I got a couple of papers out on the website also, Walvard is an excellent resource. David Jeremiah is another excellent resource. Uh, MacArthur wrote a, a, a very readable volume on the book of Revelation. The Time is Near, I think it's called. It's called The Time is Near. Very readable. Anybody can pick it up and read it and understand it. There's some great resources out there. I would, I would recommend Clarence Larkin also. Oh, yeah, you got... <laughs> he's got... He's got the pictures, doesn't he? All the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. He's from the 1930s. Yeah. Sam Jarrett is an oversized book for you to try to. You can't go to their website, you can't, it's all copyrighted. You can't copy it, but you can use it, you can make copies. Yeah. You've got to have an extra large printer because it's a big, wide book. Yeah. Yeah, he was an engineering. So he liked to draft all this stuff, he had these charts and. Yeah. You know, one, Ryrie's Dispensational Truth is a good book, too, isn't it? Ryrie has a couple of different books. Yeah. Yeah, one of his is Dispensational Truth, which is a really good book. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful day and for teaching us. And Father, I pray that instead of getting all hung up on winds and timings, we would focus on being ready so that whenever the time is that you come back, we're ready for you. We're not be ashamed when you come back. We're not going to be caught off guard. Father, thank you for the promise of your coming. We look forward to that day when we stand before you without sin, glorified and enjoying just your presence. In Christ's name, amen.